those of you that are familiar with this ministry, you know that I am firmly committed to expositional preaching. That process whereby you take a book of the Bible and you slowly and systematically teach your way through it, following the author's train of thought and argumentation as he unfolds the purpose for which he has written that particular scriptural book. There are, in my opinion, a number of benefits that uh, derive from this kind of preaching. Benefits, I think, that uh, pay big dividends over time in a local congregation that is discipled under this kind of ministry. Expositional preaching forces you, that is, the preacher and the congregation, to take note of and account for the context surrounding each and every verse of the Scripture. The importance of that is that it limits the temptation to proof texting, which is something that all of us have engaged in to one degree or another through the years, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. That is, taking Scriptures out of their context and, and uh, using them to prove a point that perhaps they don't prove at all. So, by preaching expositionally, you are forced to deal with the verses in the context in which they originate, and that is an important uh, safety measure for us against the misuse of the Word of God by proof texting. And beyond that, expositional preaching is a way that, that builds a systematic understanding of the Scripture. Churches in which expositional preaching is not the norm tend to bounce around from one topic to another. And so the congregation may be very well familiar with certain ideas, but there is a, a lack oftentimes of a, of a good fundamental biblical theology that arises by having to seriously deal with entire books of the Bible rather than just sections or verses. Beyond that, and um, why I bring all this up with you this morning, is that expositional Preaching also forces a congregation to deal with difficult topics. That is, when you are working your way through a particular book of the Bible, there are certain things that are going to come up in that book that, uh, honestly, you might not want to really deal with. And so, by preaching expositionally, there's no avoiding them. You don't go looking for them, they come looking for you. People's hobby horses are avoided that way. And things that confront us are also brought to the fore and required to be dealt with. And so this morning, that's where we are. We have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been at it now for a considerable period of time. This is the 67th message from the book of Romans so far, and we're smack dab in the middle of chapter 9. So we're only a little more than halfway through the book. And when we arrived in chapter 9, we have been brought face to face with one of the most vexing, one of the most difficult, one of the most emotionally laden and supercharged topics of the Christian life, that is, the doctrine of election. It is also, beloved, 
I believe one of the most glorious doctrines as well, because it speaks of God's sovereign purposes in redeeming a people unto himself for his own glory. But the topic of election, we didn't go looking for it. It came looking for us in Romans 9. And and so here we are. So I have preached already on this uh, on this topic a number of messages. And I told you last week that I was going to pause now and and try to to rope in some of the some of the questions that come up in people's minds as we deal with this topic. Up until now, I have confined myself to this to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. We haven't done a lot of of, uh, um, cross referencing. We haven't gone to other places in the scripture to see what they might have to say about this doctrine. In fact, we stayed with our nose firmly rooted in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, with the exception of a couple of trips back to Exodus, because Paul quoted Exodus and that necessitated us to go back there as part of his message in Romans 9. But that's beginning this morning, and it's going to be a couple of weeks now for sure, because I said to you, send me your messages or your questions, and you were very faithful to follow that. And so uh, emails have been coming in. Uh, They've been coming in all week, including uh, arriving last night. And uh, you remember I said send them early, and uh, so people measure early in different ways, I'm sure. And... um, they probably think I prepared these things on Saturday night, right? So, so that was early. You know, it's 9 o'clock Saturday night, David. You're not doing anything. Why don't you, uh, why don't you answer this question? So the questions have been coming in, and uh, they've been good questions. And uh, they, have, um, they have sort of coalesced around a number of, of different themes. And so what I have done is I've tried to, to rephrase them and capture the essence of these various questions into a series of questions that are there on your handout. I've got six of them for you this morning. And uh, looking at the clock and looking at that handout and thinking, oh, man, there's not a chance, although I had the best of intentions. So I don't I don't honestly think we're going to get there and I don't want to just rush through it all. So we'll just see what we do. But um, these questions, just to, to remind you, this this whole doctrine of election arises out of Paul's great concern for his beloved countrymen. The Israelites. And, the, and the, the issue that is really driving all of this is the fact that, that Israel had received magnificent promises from God with regard to her redemption. And yet when her Messiah came, she wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, she turned from him into a hardened unbelief that persists even to this day. Now, Paul in Chapters 1 through 8, and I can't repeat this enough because I think it's so important that we stay in the context in which this discussion arises because it takes a little bit of the emotion out of it. But the Apostle Paul in chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Romans has made magnificent promises to us as Gentiles. What he has said is that by grace through faith alone, we enter into the magnificent promises of redemption. And he finishes in chapter 8 with, in verses 38 and 39 with that lofty, soaring statement that I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And that is a that is a glorious statement on which you can meditate and and which will drive you to incredible worship. But what if it's not true? What if it's not true? What if it's just wishful thinking? I mean, after all, God made incredibly glorious and lofty promises to the Jews, and it doesn't seem to have come true for them. That's the whole point that Paul's addressing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I told you sometime back that chapter 9 is his answer of this question with regard to the fact that God sovereignly works in election. Chapter 10 is his answer to the fact that Israel is responsible for her unbelief. So it's both God's uh, work of election and it's Israel's responsibility of unbelief. And those two the truthful statements occur side by side in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Romans, and they occur without any attempt by the apostle to reconcile them with each other. And I think that's incredibly instructive for us as we begin to further explore this doctrine, is that God does not feel the need to reconcile these two things for us. Nowhere in the Scripture does he do it, and in fact, a number of places, he merely declares them side by side. No one comes to Christ unless he is drawn, or John 6, 44. Yet at the same time, all who come will be received. And there is that universal invitation of the Gospel. Now, this is in my notes, by the way. So let me try to find my notes. Here, here we go. You're like Jeremy up here. I get started. And, man, I thought you were going to preach my sermon for me. <laughs> so I've got six questions for you here this morning. Six questions that arise out of Paul's teaching on election. And I want to look at these so that we better understand and believe this glorious doctrine. And it is a glorious doctrine. Now, there are a couple of questions that we're definitely, we're not probably going to get to all six, but even if we did, there is another question we're not going to get to, and and a number of you have raised this with me, and I'm, I'm just going to come back next week and deal with that. And that's the question of what happens to infants who die. What happens to the innocents, those who die in infancy, abortion and stillbirth and and uh, and miscarriage and on and on and on. Okay, so we will come back and we will deal with that. But it is such a such an important topic, such an emotionally laden topic that I don't want to pass over that too quickly. I want to take the time to look at that in a little more detail. So we will come back and deal with that whole uh, area Maybe not next week, but the week after that, okay? And then there's even a derivative question that's come up in my mind beyond that. So we might take an even longer detour here, okay? But I think it's important enough that we'll go ahead and do it. Now, in your handout, I've I've reproduced for you many, many Scripture passages. So you can go ahead and see those, all right? I've given you not every passage, but I've given you the vast majority of the passages that we're going to be looking at together this morning. And... um, Here's what I would say to you. If you are if you know your way around your Bible, if you're quick with your Bible, then keep, you know, then turn with me to these passages. okay? and I think that would be a great thing. But if you if you find yourself falling behind, then what I would suggest to you is that you just listen, listen. okay? I've reproduced the passages for you. You can look them up on your own later and read them. There are certain key ones that I will direct everybody to turn to and I'll give you enough time to get there. 
Okay, but if you're if you're with us this morning and maybe, you, you know, the Bible is still a book that you, you're not really conversant in and you might get a little bit lost, then uh, then don't please. I don't want your five spaces behind me still looking for a verse that we've long left. OK, so if you find yourself in that position, then it's fine. Just just go ahead and and uh, listen. And I've reproduced them all and you can look them up later. OK, here we go. First question. First question. How does God harden the non-elect? How does God harden the non-elect? We've been speaking about God's mercy in salvation upon his elect, and, we've been, and Paul has been speaking about God's hardening. So how does God harden the non-elect? Now, there's a few things here we need to be reminded of. In chapter 3, Verse 11 of the book of Romans, Paul says there, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. That's part of his universal condemnation of humanity. And he says that unsaved, unredeemed humanity is characterized by an enmity, a hatred, an animosity towards their creator, whereby they neither understand him nor do they seek after a true relationship with him. That is the condition of fallen humanity. It is the condition out from which one must be redeemed in order to spend eternity with God in heaven. We call it salvation. And it is also exceedingly clear from the scriptures that God actually changes the human heart in order to save them. That is, that the human heart, the, 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 the will, the bent, the desires, the direction of humanity is away from their creator. They are running from him. Adam ran from him in the garden and humanity has been running from him, hiding from him ever since. And so it requires something to change. And the scripture tells us that God is the agent of that change. God is the one who brings about that change in the human heart. And and perhaps one of the clearest illustrations of that comes from Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 26 and 27. And there you don't have to turn there, but there in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel is talking about the new covenant and the terms of the new covenant And there he says, God speaking, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, that's a very short but powerful description of what redemption is all about. The terms of the new covenant are that God performs heart surgery, replacement, heart replacement surgery upon fallen humanity. He removes their stubborn, rebellious, unwilling heart, spoken of here as a heart of stone, and replaces it with a soft, pliable heart inclined towards him, called here a heart of flesh. And he places his Holy Spirit within us that causes us, that is, motivates us and empowers us to walk after righteousness. That's what redemption is all about. Now, it's also clear from our study of Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 23, that God hardens the hearts of those whom he has not chosen for salvation. Verse 18, Romans 9, Paul says, So he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Literally, he mercies whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. The hardening spoken of here 
is the rendering of a spiritual insensitivity or dullness. Spiritual insensitivity or dullness. And Paul clearly says that God does it to people. He changes the heart of people whom he redeems and he hardens the hearts of those whom he does not. But here's the question. Does God act in the same way when he hardens as he does when he redeems? That's really the question that, that underneath this is probably whirling around. In fact, I know is whirling around in some of your minds. How does God do go about doing this. In other words, does God actually intervene and create unbelief in the heart of the non-elect? That's the question. The Scripture tells us He creates faith in the heart of those whom He redeems, but does He intervene and create unbelief in the heart of the non-elect? Question. Answer. Are you ready? It's a very short answer. It's got two letters in it. The first letter is N. The second letter is O. No. Okay? God does not intervene and create unbelief in the heart of the non-elect. He does not do that. So, how does God harden a person? We know that He does. There's no getting around the statements Paul makes in Romans 9 that He does. The question is, how does He do it? And for that, I would like you all now to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, page 689. Isaiah chapter 6, page 689. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 6. Now, you, you're probably familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. It's that wonderful chapter whereby the prophet receives his call. The prophet Isaiah receives his call. He has this amazing vision of the Lord in the temple. And it's a, and it's a glorious, lofty vision of, of God that with the, the cherubim, our, uh, our seraphim rather, are all around him and just declaring his glory and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says, I'm ruined, right? I'm a man of unclean lips. And God redeems him and commissions him. And uh, many times you hear this passage preached as part of a, of a missionary send off service, right? It's the time to send a missionary off overseas. And so uh, the pastor comes to uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and he preaches the first part of it. And it's glorious. and Everybody's excited. And it says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. The problem is they stop reading right there. Because if they were to read just a little further, like the next verse... Then God said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. What? That's my missionary commissioning? Here am I, send me. I'm sending you to the people to tell them that you are going to continue to listen and continue to grow hard. You're going to continue to look and not be able to see. You're going to continue to hear and not be able to understand. And in fact, it is a judgment is what your message is going to be, Isaiah. 
Welcome to the ministry. Okay? You have a message of judgment. Unless, by the way, you think Isaiah was alone, you haven't spent much time reading in the prophets. Okay? The life of a prophet is not a, a life of, of um, good times. It's typically a life of preaching judgment. That's what Isaiah is called to preach here. To his people. Render the people, the hearts of the people, insensitive. Now, why do I, why do I go back to Isaiah chapter 6 here to pull out this uh, short section? Well, the reason I do that is because these two verses, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, are quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament, the writers reach back into Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and pull them forward and speak again about the nation Israel. And I've given them to you in your handouts. Actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of those references are all in the context of, of the parable of the soils. So it's the three gospel writers retelling those parable of the soils. And it's used there. We'll get to that later to look at it more carefully. It's also used in John's gospel, John 12, verses 39 to 40. And it's used in Acts 28, verses 26 to 27, when Paul was preaching at the end of his first Roman imprisonment. So the question is, how does God harden? How does God harden those who are non-elect? Well, according to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, it is by preaching. It is by preaching to them. The ministry of the prophet was to go to his people and preach the truth to them. Over and over and over again, preach the truth to them, Isaiah. And as Isaiah is preaching the truth to them, this prophecy is coming true. That is, their hearts are being rendered insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. It is preaching it is the means by which God hardens. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. This is a, a verse that is um, well known to most. In fact, it's kind of a favorite verse. I like it myself. Isaiah 55. Maybe we'll pick it up in verse 10. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from earth and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, I like this verse, and when I usually read this verse and think about it, I think about the word of God going out to redeem. And indeed, the word of God does go out to redeem. But, beloved, there is two sides to the two edges to the sword of the word of God. One side cuts unto redemption. The other side hardens unto damnation. And so the preaching of the word of God accomplishes these twin purposes, these twin purposes. It, it accomplishes that for which God has sent it out, just as surely as rain and snow bring about the crops of the earth. Another place where we can see this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of preaching that acts as a stumbling block or foolishness to those who are outside of the faith. And it is the means by which God redeems those who are his chosen people. So it is preaching of the word is the way he hardens. It goes beyond that, though. Second Corinthians Chapter two or chapter, yeah, chapter two, second Corinthians, chapter two. And what I'm doing here is to try to answer this question is just pulling together various statements. And trying to build a a more comprehensive answer. Second Corinthians, chapter two, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, therefore, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? What Paul says is that the life of the believer is a fragrance and it's either a sweet fragrance or it's a noxious aroma. And it depends on who's smelling it. The fragrance is the same. It is the same fragrance. It's just to some people it smells sweet and appealing and to other people it smells like stinkweed and they don't want anything to do with it. It repulses them. It hardens them. It drives them away from Christ. Probably the best illustration I could think of would be the two thieves on the cross, right? Crucified left and right of Messiah. One thief... I mean, in the beginning, they're both reviling him, right? And then one thief is drawn to him because Christ represents a a fragrant aroma, sweet smell to him. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he says, behold, I say to you today, you'll be with me where? In paradise. The other one continues to revile him until his last breath leaves his body. To one, he is a sweet smelling savor. To the other, he is a noxious aroma. To one he 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 draw he's drawn the other one is repelled or repelled or um, repelled. So the life of a Christian is a means by which people are drawn to Christ or pushed away from Christ. It is a means by which God draws His elect or repulses those who are being hardened. Maybe another illustration is in Second uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thess two, verses eleven and twelve. This is speaking about the time, the end times. And it says There are those, the end of verse 10, who do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? What he is saying is that then at the end of the age, 
that God will send forth this deluding influence in the form of false signs and wonders. Verse nine, you can see that. The activity of Satan, all power and signs and false wonders, that is, there will be all kinds of of spiritually uh, spiritual powers and miracles and signs occurring at the end times here. And God will send forth this this deluding influence so that those who hate him will believe the lie and will be further hardened in their rejection of Christ. So there's a there's a sense in which God uses the evil of men, these these lying signs, these false wonders, in order to deceive unbelieving men and to harden them in the unbelief which they already possess. Go back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse three, Paul's talking about his gospel being veiled. That is, it's it's covered over so people can't see it, can't understand it. Seeing they see not, hearing they do not hear. Their hearts have been rendered insensitive. That's the idea. Verse three. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Matthew, chapter 13, verse 19. Don't turn there. Just listen. Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So there is a there is a sense in which Satan and his minions blind the minds of the unbelieving. They they snatch away the word of God. They become a secondary cause of spiritual blindness. In a crowd of this size, it's happening right now. As the Word of God is being spoken right now in this place, someone, the Word is being snatched from you. It's being snatched from you. Maybe you're daydreaming. Maybe you're sleeping this morning. Maybe you're thinking about something else. But what is happening to you right now is that the truth that your soul is in eternal jeopardy is being stolen from you. That's sobering. That's sobering. Satan is at work stealing the truth. And this is the means by which God hardens those in unbelief. Go to Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 9, but the context here, just picking up in verse 7. Paul says, what then? That which Israel is seeking for, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Okay, so we're clearly in the right context here. 
And look down at verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. What in the world is he talking about? David speaks those words in Psalm 69, verse 22. Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. What is he talking about? When he talks about a table here, he's talking about their prosperity, their security. And basically what he's saying is that their security becomes their undoing. Their prosperity is the source of their undoing. That which is feels good and, and, and gives them such comfort and confidence in this life, it becomes the means by which they become hardened to the reality that their soul is in deadly jeopardy. Jesus said it another way in Matthew's Gospel. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to do what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, camels do not go through eyes of needles. Okay? He took the largest animal and the smallest hole. That's the point. All right? So what he's saying is, that for the, he, he goes on to say that with, with man it's, it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. But by, by derivation, what, what he's talking about is that the rich sense no need for salvation. Their wealth, their prosperity is their undoing. They don't care about their soul. They don't care about the life to come because the life here is so good. I mean, who cares about heaven by and by when I got, you know, this gigantic house and I got 18 cars in the yard and a boat and three vacation homes and, and my 401k and on and on it goes. We go door to door in this community with a regular, with a regularity every month, at least. And it has been our observation that as we go door to door in the north part of this community where the wealth is frightening and it's extravagance and excess, that we get no interest in the gospel. Sometimes it's just hard to get through the multiple gates and guard dogs and machine gun towers and everything else that, that guards these palaces up there. You know, you let the drawbridge down, cover the moat, you know, and the whole thing. I'm being facetious, obviously, but, but people don't want to talk about their soul. We go door to door in the southern part of the community where the people are poor, not poor, but poorer. There's a greater willingness to discuss spiritual things. Why? Because life's not that good for them. It's not that good. So a little more willing. Now, I'm not saying that, that more people get saved down there than up north. I, I don't know the statistics on things like that. All I know is that people down there are at least more willing to talk about it. Their security becomes their undoing. Let their table become a snare and a trap. God uses prosperity to harden the hearts of unbelief. And that should frighten us. Because we live in a prosperous nation. And we live in a prosperous time in a prosperous nation. We are so wealthy. In spite of what has gone on in the last month or so in the stock market, we are still fabulously wealthy. 
that wealth can harden your heart. Can harden your heart. Go back to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 11. really like this section of uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25 through verse 30. I've used this text a number of times in funeral sermons. It's clearly Jesus making appeal through this text for people to come unto redemption. But notice how he begins. By the way, this is one of those key texts I told you where the truth of God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe are placed side by side with no attempt to reconcile them. But notice how it begins in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God hides spiritual illumination from certain people. Look again, verse 25. You have hid these things. God hides spiritual illumination from some people. So, one question this morning. I guess that's it, Jeremy. How does God harden the non-elect? How does God harden the non-elect? He hardens them by revealing Himself to them. He hardens them by revealing Himself to them. Revealing themself, Himself to them in nature and in Scripture. And by not restraining them when they resist that revelation. See, Psalm 19 says that the heavens are declaring what? The glory of God. Day after day, night after night, it pours forth speech. There's no place that it's not heard, it says. Yet Romans chapter 1 says that this truth that is evident within the soul of every man is suppressed, is held down, is refused. Their hearts become increasingly hardened. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. God says to the prophet, preach to them. And as you preach to them, they will be continually rendered insensitive. In fact, they will become so insensitive to truth, Isaiah, that they will ultimately kill you. They will kill you. The more revelation God gives, the more people refuse, and the harder they get. 
Think with me back to Pharaoh. That's where it all began, remember? Paul uses the illustration of Pharaoh in Romans 9. Chapters 4 through 14. A series of ten plagues. Increasingly revealing the power of God. You remember the early plagues, the magicians could duplicate them, don't you remember? But then the, even the, uh, the, the false you know, magician said to Pharaoh, Hey, you better not mess around. We, you know, I can't fake this stuff. This is the real McCoy. This is, this is God. And his heart is harder and harder and harder. God continues to reveal himself to Pharaoh, pours out on him. A revelation of who he is. And Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder and harder. Listen to me. Listen carefully, me. If you've been coming and listening to the Word of God and have been refusing what you're hearing, Your heart is growing hard. There's a a callus forming over your soul. A crust. Your heart is becoming calcified. It will become so hard, God will shatter it in judgment. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And working together with Him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's today. It is today. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Will you walk out these doors again, just like last week? In one ear, out the other. Or will you fall on your face before God and beg Him to be merciful to you? Beloved, there is no salvation outside of Christ. He is the only door into the sheep pen. If you spurn Him, if you refuse Him, you have refused the only hope for your soul. The only hope. There's no point in coming back here. 
if you have no interest. Because every time you sit under the teaching of the Word of God and you refuse it, your heart grows harder and harder and harder. I urge you. I beg you. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, Your electing grace is a mystery. It is a mystery that defies human logic. A mystery that defies our desire to put it into nice, neat little categories. It is a mystery that requires us, in order to be faithful to Your Word, to proclaim the fact that only those whom You have chosen before the foundation of the world will ultimately come to faith in Christ, yet at the same time, all are responsible to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our Father, I pray. I pray for those this morning who have not believed, who have hardened their hearts, who have spurned the offer of the gospel, that pray, dear God, you'd have mercy on their soul. Please open their eyes and stop their ears. Do your divine heart surgery, Lord. Please remove the heart of stone. Not because they deserve it, but because you are a merciful God. We pray these things in the name of Christ who came and died to make salvation a certainty. Amen.